The Real Estate Sessions is sponsored by AdWorks. AdWorks makes digital advertising brilliantly simple. Choose your zip code and build your brand. Enter an address and promote your listings. Or upload your list and stay top of mind with your sphere of influence. And if you go to adworks.com slash billrisser, you'll do more than just build brand awareness or nurture your network. Right now, you get to save 15% off your purchase, and I get to send 10% to the Colon Cancer Alliance, an organization that means a great deal to me. That's adworks.com slash billrisser. Hello again, everybody. Welcome back to the Real Estate Sessions podcast as we continue our path towards episode 100 by looking back at some of the early episodes. I find that many of these early episodes didn't get quite the listenership because I was a new podcast at the time. Now with our bigger audience, I thought it's great to highlight some of these early guests who really helped me get started with the podcast. This week, it's episode 13 from October 27, 2015, and it's Bill Loveland, CEO of Century 21 Advantage Gold. Many of you already know Bill, a wonderful guy, one of the creators of the ePro program. Uh, he runs most of the NAR Tech Edge events, and there's going to be one here in Tampa Bay on July 19th, and we're excited to have him in. Uh, he was kind enough to ask me to do a couple presentations, so I wanted to promote that by letting you hear uh, the episode from October 27th with Bill Loveland. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the Real Estate Sessions and join industry leaders as they share their stories and offer tips and advice to real estate professionals. Now your host, Bill Rissa of Chicago Title, Arizona. Welcome to episode 13 of the Real Estate Sessions. We're very excited with today's guest, uh, Bill Loveland. Bill is uh, CEO of Century 21 Advantage Gold in Southampton, Pennsylvania, and he's Owned that brokerage, I think, now for 30-plus years, and uh, we're going to talk about that for sure. He's also all over NAR. He's been on committees for years. Bill uh, led the team that wrote the ePro certification curriculum, the only one that NAR recognizes when it comes to technology. He's also a graduate of uh, the Realtor Institute or a GRI. He's a CRS, and even today continues to create course elements for that EPRO certification. Bill was recently honored by the Pennsylvania Association of Realtors with their Lifetime Achievement Award. I mean, I can go on and on. I'll stop right there. Bill, welcome to the Real Estate Sessions podcast. Thank you so much, Bill. I was hoping you would go on and on. And however long the podcast was, it would just be you talking about how much fun I've had. We'll do that on the next uh, the next episode. <laughs> so. Okay, that would be fine. Well, my, first of all... I'm actually, I'm actually blushing that you can't see it on the podcast. Perfect. That's why we only do the podcast, no video. I know you've been in this business over 40 years, and I need to know how you find the energy to keep going the way you go. Followed you in Dubai and across Europe just recently that was seemed like that was for work. It's incredible what you do. And, and, and first of all, so how many days a year are you working? How many days are you on the road? I've never, I've never counted the number of days I work. But, you know, for example, I went to Dubai and taught um, three of the CRV courses. And um, while it was work and they were long days, and it, it was just really a lot of fun. I mean, it was a very exotic trip. I was literally halfway around the world. The cultural differences were great. So, I, I mean, 
that's not a bad way to spend your days. You know, I, I'm certainly not a, a guy that's going to, you know, sit home. You know, I, like I love to read and I love movies and I love TV and I love my comic books, but I'm not ready to sit home and not do stuff. Uh, we don't, I, I'm fond of saying that we don't uh, lift heavy weights. We don't work in dangerous environments. We really don't go out in bad weather. You know, we work with people in nice offices solving complicated um, issues, whether it's property management or sales or purchasing. And it's a lot of fun. And I love to travel. So that's just a bonus for me. Well, no, no retirement in your near future, obviously. Now, I, I can't figure out why we retire. I like what I'm doing. I'm healthy. I, I enjoy what I'm doing. And, you know, we're at a point now where even when you're at home, you know, I, I feel very guilty because I get up early and uh, generally I'll go down to, I have a, a big man cave in my house and I'll go down to the man cave and I go to the computer and I'll do email. Then I get on the treadmill or I'll work out. Then I'll go back and I'll work on the computer. And sometimes I end up getting to the office a little late, but I've actually been working for three or four hours already. So, I mean, the, the lines between leisure time and work time have really blurred. But, uh, like I said, we do sort of fun stuff. So, why, why stop doing it? Speaking of fun stuff for you, you, you brought up comic books, so I'm going to keep going there. You are, you're, I'm going to call you an extreme Comic-Con nerd, and I think you'll take that as a compliment, right? Oh, for sure. <laughs> and, and I'm assuming this started years ago. Talk a little bit about your love of that world and, and, and you've shared some great stories with me when we you know been in, been together at places but uh, just talk about how that how that came about I, I like to say that i'm really a fan of the story in all of its forms i love to read i'm, I'm a compulsive reader i love movies i like television i like documentaries i like comic books and when i was very very young I was, you know, comics were available to me every week. I would get a, uh, I would get an allowance and I would run to the nearest store and I would buy as many comic books as I could. And if I could save a buck, the next day I would go into Center City, Philadelphia, and I would buy returned paperbacks where they had taken off the, the front cover yep. so that they couldn't be sold retail. And you could buy 12 for a dollar. And I would bring them home and I would just read them. So... Uh, you know, over the years, to me, comic heroes, especially when I was younger, they, they were really symbols of all of the things in life that were good. Integrity, honesty, loyalty, all of those things. So as I grew older, you know, you continue to surround yourselves. I, I, we're, we're all sort of um, prisoners of our youth. So you continue to surround yourself with that, and I continue to collect them. And then all of a sudden, becoming a nerd became, you know, like a thing. And, of course, my, my son, uh, Hal, who, who you know, yep. mm -hmm. uh, who lived out in Marina Del Rey, is an actor. And uh, through him, I met Len Wein, who's the creator of Wolverine, and, um, you know, just a, a number of other really great science fiction writers and, and comic book writers and artists 
And these are the people who populated the stories of my youth. So going to Comic-Con is sort of surrounding myself with all the really positive, fun things in, in that sort of world. And I love to see people that, you know, it's funny, there, there are different kinds of people that go to Comic-Con. There are guys like me that get their nerd on dressed normally. And then there are people that come in beautiful and elaborate costumes. And sometimes they're single men or women, and sometimes it's a couple where one is dressed up and the other one is just a loving spouse who is proud that the person they're with is getting their nerd on. And then sometimes you get the couples that come dressed in an ensemble. And I love when you see the couples with their kids and it's like a family-themed comic book kind of thing because you just see that there's a lot of love and attachment and caring in that group. Or one hopes that they weren't yelling at the kid, no, you got to get into these tights. <laughs> but you're, you're hoping that, that that's really what that is and that they'll grow up and be, you know, caring individuals. So that's how I got started. And now it's just really tremendous fun. I want to go back a little bit then to the founding of your brokerage, uh, Century 21 Advantage Gold. You've been in the business maybe maybe nine, 10 years at this point, but then uh, something inside you said, it's time for me to go on my own. So how does that happen? Tell me how that got started. Well, actually it was interesting. When I started in the real estate business, I was possibly the worst salesperson that ever walked anywhere. I was 21 years old. I was far more interested in parties and attractive women than I was in selling real estate. And uh, my dad, who had been in real estate, he worked for a, a real estate broker had gotten me a job and you know after a year of being just a complete loser um, I ended up going to work somewhere else where I wasn't sort of in his shadow because he was really my dad was really really a tremendous salesperson and when I went to this second broker I decided that I was going to be the best guy in the office because I had embarrassed myself now for a year by being the worst guy in the office and at the end of the end of the following year, I was a top salesperson. And I was approached by a guy who said, I'm going to retire in a few years. I'd love for you to come work for me. Um, I'll teach you the business. And I went to work for the guy. There's a man named Ray Richmond, former uh, uh, president of the Greater Philadelphia Association of Realtors. And really a very knowledgeable guy. Small, one-man operation. I was the one man. He was the broker. And I was with Ray for uh, the next, gee, I want to say eight years. Um, and, and it was one of those things where he was constantly going to sell me the business, but it never happened. And then um, one day we were, uh, I had sold a, a property for a spec property that he had bought and rehabbed and resold. And this was during um, the, the recession at the end of the 1970s, which was, Prior to the last one, probably the worst recession I'd ever that I've ever been through. I was really proud of selling the house. It was a tough house. It sat low. It had gotten water. They fixed that up, and I thought I had done a good job getting a good buyer. And he told me that he was going to need to reduce my commission amount in order for him to make his target profit on the property. And I was really upset. And I took the check and I, I went to my car and I said you know what, and this is me speaking to myself, some of my best conversations. 
I said, you know what? What you ought to do is you should go and cash the check and get $100 bills. I think it was a $1,500 commission or something. You should get all $100 bills and then go in and put it on Ray's desk and say to him, if you need to make money that badly, I would rather work for you for free than reduce my commission. And I turned the key in the car and a little voice in my head said, don't be a dope. Take the money and go open an office. So I went, I deposited the money, and, and bear in mind, at this time, I'm in my very early 30s. I have a wife that doesn't work outside the home, who has some health issues, and my son was like five years old at the time. So I went back to the office, and I said to him, look, I'm, uh, you know, I was thinking about it, and I think it's time for me to open up. And he said, gee, I'm, I'm going away to, uh, to Florida. I'm going to be away for a month. I haven't been away in several years, and that was true. I said, look, Ray, um, I'll take as good care of the office over the next month as I ever have. And he left. And over the next month, I actually sold so much, it was my best month for the year. And he came back and he said, have you changed your mind? And I said, no. I went out and I, I borrowed money because I didn't have enough cash to open up. I, I went and asked for a uh, $10,000 line of credit. And the banker, who was a guy that I knew through the association, said, you know, 10000 is not going to be a loss. Let me give you a slightly larger line of credit. So he gave me a $15,000 line of credit. And I went out and rented the front, the front half of a retail space because I couldn't afford the whole one. And I had four desks for salespeople, one for myself, and one for a receptionist that I couldn't afford. So my wife was my receptionist in the beginning. And that was how I got started. And then from, from that point forward, I've never been in a rent. And you, uh, you aligned with Century 21 from day one? No, 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 no. I was an independent for the first 11 years. Um, actually, I, I opened in 1983. In 1988, I was going to buy a uh, Prudential franchise because I couldn't buy a Century 21 franchise. There was one nearby. And I investigated the Prudential franchise. And at that time, um, Merrill Lynch was a franchisor. And they had just opened company stores all over and I said to the Prudential guy, um, listen, what guarantee do I have that you guys won't start opening company stores? And he said, oh, we're never going to do that. But I can't guarantee it in the franchise agreement. And coincidentally, I had been told of a second office that was available. And uh, somebody gave me some very sage advice. They said, buy the second office. If you want to buy a franchise, that will help pay for it next time. So I went and bought that office. Prudential, oddly enough, within the next three months, bought Merrill Lynch and had company stores all over the United States and would have been right down the street from one of the offices. Um, so my, my concern had come true. I bought this second office. I made every mistake you could possibly make in buying a business, including hiring the wrong attorney. I had my, <laughs> had my second recession, which was at 89 to 91, the SNL debacle. And uh, managed to just work my way through it. I mean, every time I've come up against a significant obstacle in my life, I've sort of powered through it by working hard. So I did that in the 79 to 82 recession where interest rates were 18, 19, 20%. Um, I did that during this period where I bought my second office just in time for the market to go south because of the SNL problems. Uh, that they were having, you know, this was, uh, there were just tremendous REOs that were, were about to come out. 
and uh, worked my way through that and stabilized through the early 1990s. And then I was coming back from an NAR uh, convention in Florida in 1993. And uh, I got on the, the plane with my wife to come home in Lauderdale, actually. And uh, we were fogged in. We couldn't take off. So they made us get off the plane. And as we were getting off the plane, I saw a guy that I knew who I had taken some appraising courses with. So he was there with his wife. We sat and started talking, and we found out that we were both looking at an office to buy um, in Northeast Philadelphia. And I said to him, hey, why don't we buy it together? And you have an office. I have two. We'll own that one together, and we'll go. We'll become a poor office company. Now, he was a Century 21 broker. So we then looked at every franchise available. We looked at ERA, Cornwall Banker, Remax, um, Keller was really not a player nationally yet. They had sort of tried to take a run at the national market in 1989-90. The market had gone bad, so they retreated back to Texas, and they, weren't, they had not yet made their second more successful run. And we ended up uh, choosing Century 21 because... Pennsylvania was a privately owned region, and there was a big training facility here. And we thought that would be a really great point of differentiation for us in recruiting. So uh, we became Century 21 in 1994. In 1995, they closed the training facility. <laughs> okay. So we sort of lost that, but the brand has been very good to me for 20 years. I mean, we've, uh, we're now the largest Century 21 in Pennsylvania. I'm I'm very pleased with it. It's it's a really well recognized name. It, it it truly helped me grow from our you know going from two offices to going from one to two was difficult. Going from two to four was a little easier. Going from four to um, you know currently we're actually at ten counting our corporate center. That was easy because you get the systems in place. Right. And Century 21 has been really good as we've had that that growth period um, for us for many years. Bill, you're you are super involved at the local, state, and the national levels, you know, in all facets of the industry. And there's a, there, why is that so important for you? Well, you know, I, I started when I was really very young. I think I served on my first committee when I was 24 or 25. And I told you, I worked for this guy who had been a past president of the Philadelphia Association. I was just really impressed by the group. And when I went down to my first committee meeting, and remember, I'm a really young guy, I, I went to see this guy and I said, Ray, tell me, tell me what I should do because I, I got this committee appointment and I really don't know what's expected of me when I go down. He said, all you have to do is when you go there, Leave your business hat at home and make it better than it was when you got there. I went there. I worked on a committee called the Make America Better Committee, which was running an anti-graffiti campaign nationally in 1975 and 76. I think I shared it in 76. And I just found it very rewarding. You meet a tremendously high-quality real estate professional at the association generally. We're our association in Philadelphia, I mean, I'm, I'm always proud to say this, we were one of the charter groups in the 1908 convention. So that charter hung in the, in the offices downtown, and that always fascinated me. And I, I think that of all, the, of all the groups in real estate, the franchises, the portals, 
the publishers, the software vendors, the, everybody who's involved, title companies, mortgage companies, the, the, the truly most benign influence on the real estate industry, the one that has done the most to protect the space in which I earn a living and in which I raise my son and fed my family, is the National Association of Realtors. And the, the state and local associations, you know, because on, on the local level, you do local uh, political lobbying. On the state level, they handle state regulations. And our, our state association really does a wonderful job. Dave Phillips is the, the association executive there. And Diane Lucidi in, in Philadelphia does a great job. And we have, we have I belong to several local associations because we're a multi-county and all of the, and I don't mean not to name anybody, but I don't want to sit and name drop for your whole podcast. All of the AEs in our marketplace are really good, and they're dedicated to increasing the professionalism of the individual practitioner in helping the business move forward through the creation of things like the MLS, you know, creating this platform for cooperation and compensation that, that if it didn't exist, our marketplace would be insane. So I, I think I mentioned to you I went to Dubai uh, earlier in the year. Mm -hmm. And in Dubai, there is no multiple listing service. In Dubai, there is no exclusive listing contract, no exclusive right to sell. So everything there is very much like the Wild West. They work on sales. They work on, on listings with no assurance of compensation. One of the very first things the, the National Association of Realtors lobbied for was the use of the exclusive right to sell contract 107 years ago. 102 years ago created the code of ethics that in many ways was the basis of most real estate state regulations around the United States. So I've had the pleasure of speaking to real estate groups in Dubai, in the UK, and throughout Canada and the US. And I don't think it's by accident that Countries come from all over the world to the U.S. for real estate education, real estate organization. That, that we are sort of a leading example of a well-organized and compensated uh, industry. And the history of our organizations fascinates me. For example, my, my title insurance friend. As you know, title insurance was created in, in Philadelphia in 1876 as a result of a a large title case which took place in, I think, 1875. And the company later became the Commonwealth Land Title Company, but that started here. We actually had one of the first building and loan mortgages uh, also in Philadelphia. So we put you in debt and then we insured the title. <laughs> Great. I, I love the association because it gives me so much. And the industry has been really so good to me. I mean, I am the grandchild of immigrants who were chased from their home because of their faith. And they came to this country really with little or nothing. And, you know, my, my son and my cousins and their children are sort of the, the children of privilege. You know, I mean, we live in nice homes, and, and we did it because we were given the opportunity to make a living here. So I'm very grateful for that and grateful to the associations for creating that great market. For the industry, and even now, the, the associations are the place 
where nobody has access to grind. The associations and not-for-profit organization is run by the volunteers. So if the volunteers leave their axes at the door, nobody has anything to grow. And if you look at Upstream and AMP and RPR, you see that really on a grand scale. This is the National Association stepping in and helping the larger brokers achieve their goal with Project Upstream. Brokers of all sizes have great public records through the Realtor Property Resource RPR. And now the creation of the product called AMP which will create a unified backend for multiple listing services that are smaller, which comprise 51% of the MLSs in the United States. I want to um, ask you about 2007, 2008, you were definitely an early adopter of social media and, and definitely one of the founding members of the RE.net that was running around the country. You know who those people were. You helped form the Social Media Marketing Institute in 2008. And that's when a lot of people were kind of dismissing social as a fad, especially in, in the industry. So talk a bit about 2008 and that the impending explosion that was coming for this social, digital kind of new way of looking at things in real estate. Well, it, you know, actually, that story goes back to the association. So in um, 2007, I was a member of the uh, Interpretators and Procedures Subcommittee of the Professional Standards Committee. And we met with several bloggers who were talking about the real estate space, Jim Duncan from Virginia and Liz Luby from Chicago. And they came and addressed a small meeting and showed us their blogs and showed us other real estate-related blogs, uh, Jay Thompson's Phoenix RE Guy blog, Ben and Lenny Rosales' uh, Agent Genius, as it was called at the time. What was interesting to me is leadership on every level uh, in, in the associations staff, local, state, national, always seems to be talking about trying to deliver what our members want and trying to communicate with our members and find out what the, what the members have to say. And I, I looked at the blogs and I, I began reading and I, I remember turning around to uh, Cliff Nearspot, who's our staff person, who's an amazing, amazing guy. And I, I said to him, you know, all this time, We've been talking about trying to find out what the members are, are, have to say. I said, and they're talking. We're just not in the right room. And I began following some of these things, and I, I got into a, a heated argument over a holiday. I think it was a Memorial Day with uh, Jeff Brown from San Diego, uh, who's at Bald Guy on Twitter. And he's really a good guy, and we had a back and forth because he didn't like the local MLS, and he was not a big fan of the local realtor association. And we just went back and forth. And then um, Lonnie Rosales reached out to me and asked if I would like to write for Agent Genius. And I began writing for them. As a matter of fact, I was actually the guy that helped them break the story of the Department of Justice settlement uh, with NAR. They were, the, they were the first ones out with that because I got news of it early and I wrote a quick post. And through that, I, I met lots and lots of uh, people that were, as you said, the RE.net. In August of 2008, very unexpectedly, my wife passed away, and I came home to find her gone unexpectedly. An embolism or aneurysm had taken her during the day, and I was on the phone with Ben Rosales when I found her, and I, I was just shocked. We were married for 33 years. She was not sick. I left her in the morning. She was working out. I kissed her said, I'll see you later. I love you. 
left and came back to find her gone. And I said, Ben, I have to call you back. I hung up. And I called 911 and did all the things you do there. Then I, I wrote him an email later on trying to explain what had happened. And he published it as a blog post the next day. And the outpouring of sympathy was amazing. I mean, people, blogs all across the United States, people that, some of whom had met uh, Sheila when she and I attended the first Army Bar Camp in San Francisco, many of whom had not, just went black on their, on their blogs that day in honor of her passing. And it was sort of funny for me because, so I'm Jewish, so we sit ship. So after someone has passed away, there's a funeral, and then for several days, you mourn sort of the wake after the fact. And I would have, uh, because my wife was really very well loved, I would have a house filled with people. I mean, a hundred or more people were there almost all the time. And I would find myself going into my home office and going online to see what comments there were from my online sort of support about S.H.I.E.L.D. Because it was really just a, a wonderful outpouring of love and support. And, and that sort of made me realize how insanely powerful the connections were that you made with people online. And that combined with, with my need to find an outlet for my energy in a positive manner in this difficult time led to creating the Social Certified Marketer, which then became the ePro, uh, was the basis of what, what became the, the new ePro in uh, 2010. That's an amazing story. That online support group, a lot of people have found that to be comforting and to be a, a source of this sense of community that a lot of people don't have. You mentioned ePro, and I want to take it a step further. Not only, so ePro has been around for a while now, 2010, I think. You've got, now your work, you've been doing NAR Tech Edge events for at least a few years. Three or four years now. Yeah, so talk about the genesis of that. It has to be kind of coming out of the ePro platform. And especially, I've, I've noticed that you take it to some places that are not just major centers. You'll take it to a little town, bring that stuff to people that normally may not, might not have access to that sort of education. Well, and that, and that was actually, so what happened was, we, we put the ePro together. We got great traction in 2010. Um, the course was designed back in, in uh, 1999 initially. And this was the first really big rewrite that included social. And um, so for the first year, we're getting traction. In, in the second year, we're getting, you know, a little bit less traction. You know, the market's still rough. People don't have a lot of money to spend. And I um, called Mark Gould, who uh, was running, uh, he runs Realtor University but at the time, uh, and I said, Mark, I said, I, I have this idea. I said, if you want let me create an event, I have enough friends around the country that are really good at what they do that I'm willing to bet I could fill a room with half-hour presentations from these people, just talking about their best stuff, what they're using, what's not good, mobile, video, connecting with the online consumer. And, you know, we have a, we have a million realtors in the country. So uh, Mark, who's a great guy, took a shot with it, and we created a, a with Heidi Hennig and, and then later Amanda Stinton, uh, who became my handlers. It became a line item on the budget. 
we did, I think, uh, for the first year. And uh, as a matter of fact, I'm doing one week from Monday. I'll be in Anaheim on November 2nd to make it really the happiest place on Earth. And we'll be talking about video. We'll be talking about mobile. I have um, some really terrific people there. Um, and I, I, if I start naming them, I forget somebody. I'm going to feel like a real dope. You know, Thomas Minsky and, and uh, Jeremy Lehman, Heather Roser, Carol Farrar, Ken Burlington from NAR is, is coming down, Jeff Lobb, okay. and that figment there. So, and, and we're going to do eight hours in 20, 25 minute segments that uh, I, one of the things we're doing is a panel called Millennials Hit or Myth. We're doing one on uh, my biggest tech mistake. I really like that one because that's fun. You know, what things we, we who are the tech people, what, what mistakes we make, what ugly piece of machinery we shouldn't have bought. Like, I'm, I'm not embarrassed to admit I was the owner of a Google Glass. I still am, and that was a mistake. But it was still a good thing to have, and, and we talked about the wise. So, it, yeah, it's been terrific. It's been a lot of fun. You've participated and made them wonderful. Yeah, I just, I love my, I have a ton of fun with it. Well, let me, let me uh, let's go back to those mistakes real quick. You give me a couple mistakes you see realtors just kind of, it's a con, the common one that happened in the digital social space all the time. Oh, well, the really, look, the really big mistake everybody makes is, is um, using a bullhorn instead of a, a hearing tube. You know, they start talking about themselves instead of listening to the clients. And, and you, that, as you, you know very well, is that, the biggest faux pas. You know, look, I, I still get from people that I like and therefore won't unfriend, but, you know, Facebook has become such a, a large wasteland to some degree that I get open house invitations to houses that are half or three quarters of the way across the country. Like, I'm glad my friends have a listing and I'm thrilled someone's holding it open for them, but I'm really not the right demographic for that. You know, I, I mean, I've already got a house on each coast and a house here. It's enough. So I don't need to see your house in the middle of whatever state it is. As lovely as it may be, it's just not where I'm going. So I think that's a, a big mistake that people make commonly. Uh, they, they confuse a social platform for a marketing platform. And the other mistake they make is in doing marketing that's not in some manner measured. Like you can measure... Uh, your SEO or SEM, search engine optimization or search engine marketing or pay-per-click. You can measure the things you do and the things you spend there. You can measure retargeting or using something like AdWords. But for people, and, and this was actually why we had to rewrite ePro again at the beginning of this year, because we talk more about actual digital marketing in addition to social media adoption. Because it, it used to be when we started teaching it, how many people are on Facebook, and a handful of farms would go up. And now we ask how many people are not on Facebook, and if it's a big group, I might get two or three. You know, so everybody's adopted. Now we got to figure out what we can do to reach consumers online and to understand their 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 buying cycle, because this the 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 buying cycle starts so much earlier because people research without commitment before they're actually ready to act what Google calls the zero moment of truth. Yeah. So, but we get contact with them and we get all excited because we think they're going to run out and look at a house with us when they're maybe six, eight months out. Right. So we, we talk about some of the ways to handle that. For example, in my company, we have something called phone blitzes in each of our offices. 
and we'll take um, consumers' names and contact information that have been marked as a proposed cold by an agent in our company who reached out to them when they inquired about a property. And we find that we get about 30% response in conversations and as much as uh, 5% response in new appointments set up from that, from making those calls. They were just a little early when, when they first contacted us. I see that there are these two um, factions in the world of real estate, and it's the lead gen people versus the referral-based people. And ultimately, you know, in my opinion, some combination of the both is ideal. But, Hot, give me your thoughts about these strategies. Well, look, new consumers, the, the lead gen, which I, which I sort of hate that we have to use the word. Right. Because people aren't leads, they're people. But a consumer contact that you get from someone you've never met may be your next referral. So I, I think they're very important, especially for people that are newer in the business. Even for people that have been in the business for a while that are working referrals. You know, I, I was always driven, um, because we were a single-income family for most of my career, I was always driven to make as much as I could so that my son could go to a good school, so my son could go to a good college, so he could come out without, um, without any debt. You know, those were the things that drove me. I probably could have always had a bigger house or a bigger car than I drove or lived in, but, but that wasn't my priority. So the new customers... The ones that I've not met, I love those guys. You know, you, you meet them, you help them satisfy their need, and they become your clients for referral in the future. So I, I think you're right. I think there has to be a balance because they, they say the, if, the, if the population, you know, sells housing at a rate of 4.5% a year, you really need a lot of referrals to have a good, steady income. So I think you need to be able to reach out and find new people, and to um, work with referrals as well. I'm with you. I think there needs to be a combination of the two. But I think an agent that doesn't know how to go find business when his friends aren't ready to buy is at a great disadvantage. I end, I end every episode with the same question. I'm going to give it to you as well. If you could only give one piece of advice to a room full of agents, what would it be? Show up every day and remember. Remember, if you haven't spoken to a buyer or seller about listing or buying, you haven't worked. Bill, I can't thank you enough for taking the time. I know how busy you've been. You had a big uh, Century 21 event up in New Jersey, I think, uh, this week. Yeah, we just finished it today. I just got back to the office this afternoon. And then tomorrow I fly to Carolina and watch the Eagles play on Sunday. Oh, excellent. That will be fun. Excellent. The, the, yeah, the Panthers are tough this year. That's going to be a heck of a game, so good luck with that. Yeah, I know. They're 5-0, so yeah. I'm hoping they'll be 5-1 and one Sunday. All right. Well, you know what? I'll, I'll pull for you. I'll pull for, the, for, your, for your Eagles as well. And once again, thank you for taking the time to hang out here with us. And, and uh, I look forward to seeing you in San Diego in mid-November because I'll be there. So I'll find you. Me too. I'm looking forward to that. That will be. This was a lot of fun, and thank you for having me. But it will be even more fun to see you face-to-face. Uh, thanks, Bill. I appreciate it. Same back to you. We'll talk to you soon. Talk to you. Bye-bye. You've been listening to The Real Estate Sessions with Bill Rissa of Chicago Title, Arizona. Please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and tell your friends about The Real Estate Sessions as new episodes are published weekly.